Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord Jesus, you are, you are the great giver. You're the great giver and you're the great gift itself. You are the gift of God that has come to the earth to show us what relationship with God looks like. You hold all things in your hands and it's so easy for us to think that you're not with us. Because at least in the West, it feels like we have a a semblance of control over our lives. We don't have war on our shores. We have money in the bank account. We have a roof over our heads. It feels like we're in control. So we miss so many chances to see you come through, to be the living God you say you are. Challenge us. Every person in this room, no matter what they think about you, God, would they know that they are welcome here, that you have brought them here, that you want to meet with them today, and you want to challenge them to let go of their hearts and their minds and to enter fully into relationship with you. Would every person here leave today more deeply in love with you and more deeply yours. We don't want to be our own. We don't want to control ourselves. We want to be yours, God, because we know life with you is the most abundant life possible. So we worship you. We praise you. It's in your name. Amen. So guys, we are coming to the end of our series, Groundswell. We've been in this series the entire fall. Uh, The basic premise of the series has been simple. What would it look like for the presence of God to invade our hearts? What would it look like for a living God to speak to you, to call out things in your past, trauma, addictions, wrong narratives that you hold on to, to enter those places, those dead places, those dark places with his light and his love? What would it look like for God to invade and to shape us into his friends? And we've been using John's gospel to explore that. And there's only two sermons left. We are in uh, this Sunday and then next week and we'll be done. And throughout John's gospel, we've seen Jesus do precisely that. Wherever Jesus goes, God's presence invades people, touches people. In all sorts of ways. So he teaches, right? So if you're reminded in John chapter 3, he, he talks with Nicodemus. And as he talks with Nicodemus, Nicodemus's mind is invaded by the presence of God. And his, his imagination of who God is is shifted. In chapter 7, the Pharisees, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And everyone is freaking out because he teaches as one who has authority. Not like they're they're teachers of the law. And the Pharisees actually say in John chapter 7, what do we do? The whole world has gone after him. Interesting. Little did they know that the whole world was about to go after him. Because there's something in his teaching that brings the presence of God into our minds and shapes us to to new realities. Maybe, Maybe I'm not a mistake. Maybe I actually am God's child. Maybe the shame isn't too great. Maybe God does love me. Our minds are shifted. Wherever Jesus goes, he heals. 
His presence invades sick bodies and restores them. Wherever Jesus goes, he he acts in a way that is really um, unnatural to society. So he touches lepers, those who are deemed unclean, which should make him ceremonially unclean. He doesn't care. He touches them. He washes his disciples' feet, a very deplorable act in that society. He welcomes women and children. And in these actions, his presence, God's presence, is entering the hearts of people, offering a new interpretation of who this God is. Everywhere Jesus goes in John's gospel, people's minds, their bodies, and their emotions are swelled by the presence of God. And it's been the same with us in this series. I know it. I've talked with many of you. You've had encounters with this God. And yet, and yet throughout the whole gospel, Jesus has continually hinted that that's not the main reason why he came. There is one more thing that he came to do before his mission is done. And we read a synopsis of it in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus has come to die. He's come to lay down his life. And by dying, to take upon himself what we in the church call the sin of the world. Now, sin is one of those churchy words. We've talked about it before, but just to to reiterate. Think of sin like cosmic brokenness. It comes from the Greek word hamartano, which Aristotle used while thinking of an archer that shoots an arrow at at uh, at a mark, at a target, and misses the bullseye. If the arrow misses the bullseye, it's hamartanoed. It missed the mark. To sin is to fall short of an ideal. So a withered flower, we see an image of a withered flower. This flower is almost like a personification of sin. It is missing the mark of the ideal for flowers. It has drooping petals, a brown stem, the color is gone. There's something that is broken within the flower that does not allow it to to be the ideal flower. It's the same with us, your body. Sickness hits our bodies, especially this time of the year. Disease hits our bodies. I've talked about before, my face, I was born with a congenital disorder called Golden Heart Syndrome. I was born and my body was broken in a bunch of different ways, especially my face. My face is an example of the cosmic brokenness that is at work in this universe. It has not reached the ideal of whole faces. We look at, we go from our bodies, we go to our hearts. What do our hearts love? And when we examine our hearts, we realize that there are things within it that are not the ideal. It's full of envy and comparison, pride. I feel better than others. Why is that? That doesn't feel right. I, I, because of fear, I lash out and I lie to people or I commit violence against people. I betray friends and I'm shocked when I do it. There is something deep within my heart that does not lead me to love people sacrificially, which is what I want to do, but rather leads me to act very selfishly and preserve myself. When we look at our relationships, how hard it is to empathize with people. 
Y'all know what I'm talking about? How hard it is to sit with someone you love and to talk through something and to really hear it from their perspective. And it's just, it's so hard. We can't empathize. We, we, it's so hard to listen and to trust and to make decisions that put them first. Our relationships fall short of this ideal that we have. And if we, if we move away from the individual to the systemic, we see it when we look at our societies, and we look at world history, politics, leaders, technologies. I don't know if you notice this. Revolutions, they always start with such hope. And they always, this downward slope to corruption. Our technology, Silicon Valley, there was a time 20 years ago when it was 1999. Y'all, how crazy it, 20 years ago it was 1999. The world was about to end. We made it. Congrats. But remember, there was a time when everyone held up Silicon Valley as like the bastion of democracy, the bastion of the free world. And look, 20 years later, it's just this downward slope of corruption, of distrust. Why? Why does everything start with hope and end in despair? And it does, and you know it does. I was just reading an article the other day in the New Yorker about the Park Slope Co-op and the history of the Park Slope Co-op. And one of the guys who, I think he owns it now, uh, or I guess he wouldn't own it, but who, who like runs it. And, um, and uh, he was talking about, he was there from the beginning. And he talks about how it started with such high ideals for how it was going to work. Ideals premised on um, egalitarianism and you know, community. And slowly as time went on, it just didn't work. They had to put more stringent rules and business practices in place. And he has this line where he goes, a business, even an anti-capitalist one, can't run on peace and love alone. Which is ironic and sad and the perfect essence of sin. Because why? Why can't it run on peace and love alone? Because there is something within us. Though we ascribe to peace and to love and to these wonderful ideals that is unable to actualize it, always. There is something within us that does not allow us to live the ideal life, to create the ideal society, or the ideal Park Slope Co-op. And guys, if the Park Slope Co-op can't do it, then sin is real, <laughs> all right? And we see as Jesus lived his life, and he restored people's brokenness, he was shining light and love and the presence of God into the effects of sin. He was restoring the color in the flower. He was causing the petals to sit upright again. He healed bodies. He entered minds and hearts. He brought the light of God into the effects of sin, but not yet into the root of sin. That's the key point. Jesus' light entered those places where you can see the world is falling short. You see diseased bodies. You see hardened hearts. You see broken relationships. But Jesus' light has not yet entered into the source for why the world has fallen short. If you imagine the example of someone who was abandoned as a child, and as they grow up, what happens? They develop anger issues, addictions, hard hearts, self-destructive relationships. It's almost like what we witness in John's gospel is Jesus getting to those things. He's, he's dealing with the anger issues. He's dealing with the addictions and the self-destructive relationships, but he's not yet got to the root cause. He's not yet dealt with the abandonment itself. 
There is something beneath our broken, diseased bodies, our jealous, fearful hearts, our self-centered, fractured relationships, our self-destructive habits. There is something beneath it that God hasn't yet dealt with. God's presence hasn't entered that place, which is the main reason God came. And in this scene, in the final scene, Jesus is taking God's presence right into the heart of the darkness. The good news, says G.K. Chesterton, the good news of the gospel is the good news of original sin, which is an interesting thing to say, isn't it? And what he means by that is because when we recognize that what we see are the effects of sin, but we don't see the root of it, that the, the root of what went wrong is actually beyond this world. It's outside of this world. It is what we would say is a spiritual source, or depending on your proclivity, an existential source. It's not your fault to a certain degree. You're not excused, but it's also not your fault. It's bigger than you. There's something deeper in the cosmos that causes the world to not work, that causes our hearts to, to envy and to compare, that causes our bodies to be born broken or to contract diseases. There's something deeper. There's a spiritual happening. As Dostoevsky called it, it is the wise and dread spirit of self-destruction and non-existence. Jesus has entered the effects of sin, which is our separation from God. That's what we see in all these examples, where there's darkness and God's light enters. It's our separation from God that he's healing. But Jesus has not yet entered into the source of sin. And if the effects of sin is separation from God, then the source of sin is rejection of God. We see a world separated from God's life, but at its core of that separation is a deep hatred of God, a deep rejection of him. God is the ground of being. He's the source of all existence in whom all live in love and life. And when we're in communion with him, we experience wholeness. And many of you might have experienced wholeness in this series. Moments of it. Where his presence is near. And you just feel it's right. You know this is good and right. But none of us stay there because we live in a world that has rejected God. Sin is that deep place in your heart that says, if the only possible way that I can have an abundant life the life we all want, if the only possible way to have that kind of life is through, re through relationship with God, well, then I reject that life. I want a lesser life because I do not want to be a dependent creature on him. Original sin is the rejection of God. And if we reject God in life, of course, the only natural thing that follows will be death. As Karl Barth wrote, death be the supreme law of life. We can say no more that, than if there be salvation, it must be salvation from death. Particular sins do not alter the status of a human. They merely show how heavily the general dominion of sin presses upon him. Some of us have broken bodies. Some of us have broken relationships. Some of us have mind and hearts to differing degrees of brokenness. Yet we all have a root existential condition that rejects God and we all will die. That is the supreme law of life. People ask, why did Jesus have to die? The real question is, why did he even bother living? Why did he even bother having a ministry? Because sin and death was always the point, guys. 
God came to deal, not with the effects of sin, but the root of it. Not with just our separation from him, but our rejection of him, our hatred of him. You hate it, and I know you do. I hate it too. That you have to live as a dependent creature. That you didn't have a say over you coming into existence. That you don't have control of your life and of your death. I didn't create myself, and yet I, I posture myself in this world as if I did. As if I have power and say over what happens. The reason why Jesus d- decided to live it all was to add credibility to his death and resurrection. The life of authority and power testified to his claims that God is for you. God loves you, desires you, that, that he is God's servant who has the power to deal with death. But the point was always sin and death, always. Because in that we get to the rejection, to the heart of the darkness. And I'm not going to read the, the, the whole scene because it encompasses three chapters. We might be here a while. But as we read the scene of Jesus' betrayal, we read the scene of his false trial, we read the scene of his crucifixion and his death, as he draws closer to death, to the ultimate place of the rejection of God, what we notice is that he is increasingly rejected by every character in the story. It starts in the garden. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane with his best friends, his disciples, and they're praying. And one of them named Judas comes, and he tells the guards as he's betraying Jesus to them, he goes, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Guys, do not miss the irony of that. (laughs) A kiss. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. God is love, and love made Judas to be loved. And love loved Judas so much that he gave Judas the ability to reject the one who made him. To which Judas rejects love with the perversion of the ultimate symbol of intimacy, a kiss. Don't miss the irony in this. Sin is the perversion of a good gift. We were made by love and for love. And the ultimate source of sin, the depth of it, the irony of it, is that we would use this good gift of love, a kiss, to reject the one who gave it to us. (laughs) When Jesus is arrested, Peter follows him into the courtyard. And as Jesus predicted, Peter denies him three times. He swears with lots of R-rated language that he does not know that man. He rejects that man. Peter was Jesus' best friend. He was the the rock of the church. It'd be like for, for my spouse, Anna and me. In a lot of ways, I'm her best friend. And when she needed me most, if I turned to her and I started cursing her and rejecting her, I do not know her. I don't know who she is. The heart of the betrayal there. Jesus is rejected by his best friend. Then he's taken back and forth between Rome and Israel. Pilate tries to find a charge to crucify him. Israel tries to find a charge. Notice politics and religion, right? The twin pillars of our society. Politics are how we rule ourselves. Religion is why we live the way we do. And both of them, 
reject Jesus. Politics rejects the rightful king. Religion rejects the true God. Everyone's rejecting him. Pilate then takes Jesus out and he asks the crowd of Jews who were there, who would they rather have set free to live among them as their friend? Jesus, who healed them, who taught them, who just a little bit ago, they were clamoring that he has this power that no one else has. He's loved them like no one else has. Do you want him or do you want Barabbas, who's a murderer, who the only thing he gave you was he caused an insurrection and he almost brought the, four, the full force of Rome against you? Who do you want? Crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Those who have experienced Jesus' love say, we don't want this man. Reject him. Crucify him. They take Jesus to Golgotha, which literally is called the place of the skull, the place of death, and they crucify him. A form of execution reserved for the worst human beings at that time. Jesus is counted among the most rejected human beings imaginable in that first century. And as he's on the cross, this is what we read. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and they put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Every step of the way, Jesus has been rejected, signifying he is inching closer to the root of our separation, to the root of our existential dilemma, the source of our original sin, our hatred toward God, our rejection of God. And the poignancy of his knowledge in this moment, he says, I am thirsty. I thirst for God. And laying down every step of the way, his life, because that's what love does. Love does not seek to control, love lays down. Here in this scene, he lays down his spirit and God in the flesh enters into the heart of the darkness. God in the flesh enters into the center of sin. God enters into the rejection of God. You wouldn't know it in uh, the English translation, but the passage we just read, there's a word that's used three times, teleo. If you know the word telos, we started the year actually talking about our telos. Teleo is the Greek word for meaning to fill or to fulfill, to complete, to make perfect. And it's used three times here. We're told, knowing that everything was filled, everything had now been finished. It was teleo. And that scripture had been fulfilled, teleo. Jesus said, it is finished, teleo. What's Jesus doing here? Think of a bowl filling with water, slowly filling with water. At first, it's just mainly space and a little bit of water, but now, as more and more water fills the bowl, there's less space, there's less space. And then the last drop of water gets to the brim, and now there is no space left. The entire bowl is water. All is water. Guys, the world has been separated from God. Earth, hearts, bodies, minds, kingdoms, institutions, 
And Jesus came like living water to begin filling the bowl back up again with God's presence. But there was one spot left in the cosmos left to fill. Not simply our separation from God, but the source of our separation. The last spot left until all will be finished, until it is done, it is fulfilled, it is filled. The last spot was our rejection of God. And now even here, God has entered it and filled it with his presence. God inhabits the rejection of God. I know that sounds like a tongue twister. God inhabits the rejection of God. It's a double negative. And what happens when we have a double negative? It becomes a positive. Light has entered into the heart of the darkness and now all is light. The water is filled to the brim and now all is water. God became sin and death and renders them powerless now. They are filled with God, therefore they have no more power over us anymore. They are filled with God, therefore they have no more power over you anymore. It's all teleo. The cosmos, your existence, your heart, even that place in your heart that hates God. But it's still there. I have it there too. The heart, the place in your heart that rejects him because you don't want to live in complete communion with him. Even there, God's presence is. It's filled. It's finished. It's finished. We are in the season of Advent, which interestingly celebrates the coming of God. The coming of God as, as he became human and joined us. That's what we sang today, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. But now we know that God is with every part of us. The good, the ugly, and the evil that wants nothing to do with him. Interestingly, Jesus has other names. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's called the beginning and the end. Jesus is God in every place. It's all filled by his presence. And what is so fascinating is when you look at the parallels between Jesus' birth and his death. At his birth, Caesar Augustus forced Joseph and Mary, his parents, to travel to maintain control of his empire. At his death, Pilate forced Jesus to be crucified to maintain his own power. Herod killed baby boys two years and younger out of fear at Jesus' birth. The Jewish leaders also had Jesus crucified out of fear for their own position. Jesus was born in the barn because there was no room in the inn. Jesus died outside the city gates of Jerusalem because there's no room to die within Jerusalem. Myrrh was presented by a wise man at his birth. Myrrh was used on his dead body by the wise man Nicodemus to prepare him for burial. Mary and Joseph were both there again. I don't know if you know that. Mary, his mother, was actually there both times. She was with Jesus at his birth, and she's standing by the cross as he dies. And if there was ever a reason why I understand the Catholic Church reveres Mary, it has to be this. For his mother, his mother, given this child, for the sake of the world, was there at his birth and his death. And Joseph, too. At his birth, all we know is that Joseph is his father, not by, by his, own, his own line, 
but we know little about him other than he was righteous. At his death, Joseph of Arimathea, who we know little about except he was a good man, takes him. At his birth, Jesus is wrapped in cloth and laid in the manger. At his death, Jesus' body is taken down from the cross, wrapped in cloth and laid in the tomb. The parallels are striking, guys. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has referred to this moment, his death, as the hour of glory. That's what he calls it. This is the hour of glory. Father, glorify your son so your son may glorify you. And here at his death arrives and we understand why it is the hour of God's finest glory. Because here in the place of utter rejection of God, the source of the darkness, God's power and love are most clearly witnessed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's how John's gospel opens. But what we want to know, great, Jesus is with God in the beginning, but is Jesus with God in the end? He's with you in the beginning, but will he be with you in the end? God is with us at our birth, but is God with us at our death? Is he strong enough for that? God loves us in our joys, but will God suffer with me in my sorrows? God is with you when you praise him, but is God's love strong enough to be with you when you curse him? And now we know the answer. Yes. God's love is strong enough to handle any and every stage you could ever find yourself in. Birth, joy, sorrow, cursing, evil. Even there, it is filled by the presence of God. Even there, you are never too far from his love, it is everywhere. The only choice you get is whether you want to receive it or not. I'm going to invite the band back up, and I'm going to end with a story. Because I don't even know how to sum this up. You can't, you can't draw a parallel with this in a story. But I'm going to try. I, uh, I've talked about this before. I had a season in college where I probably just did the college thing. I was angry at the world. I was angry at myself. I hated God. I hated my family. I hated it all. Um, it was a lot of self-destruction, a lot of destruction of others. And there was actually a night that I'll spare you the details but just suffice it to say, it was one of the worst nights of my life. It was one giant middle finger to God. It was one giant middle finger to myself. I wanted everything to burn. I wanted everything to die. I hated it. It was pure, absolute self-destruction. It was pure, absolute rejection of everything. And I woke up the next morning pretty numb, and a friend who I hadn't talked to in a while had sent me an email. And some of y'all probably know the, he had sent me a video. <laughs> and some of y'all might know the video. It was that cheesy Lifehouse skit performed in churches. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 
Some of you who don't be like, what's the Lifehouse skit? Go look it up later. I'm not going to show it. <laughs> but in the skit, out of nowhere, in the skit, I clicked it. I started watching. I had never seen it. It's a song by the band Lifehouse. And they're singing. They're saying, you're all I want. You're all I need. You're everything. You're everything. And it's a skit of this, this character who has experiences of communion with God. And it's so good. But then life goes on and things distract the character. Bad things. And there's a moment where it culminates where the character is considering killing themselves. And all these voices, all these distractions are just encircling the character and saying, do it, do it, do it. And right in that moment, right before the character does it, Jesus bursts in and he removes the distractions, the voices. And the character is free. And the voices are just pounding Jesus. They're just beating him. And he's just standing there holding it because he's strong enough to hold it. And the band is singing, you're all I want, you're all I need, you're everything, you're everything. And I know the song is written for us to sing that to God. But in that moment, after my night of pure self-destruction, I heard God sing it to me. Russ, you're all I want. You're all I need. You're everything. You're everything. And I was like, God, did you not see last night? I just, I cursed it all. I cursed it all. You're still here? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Even in the place of absolute rejection. Absolute death. I'm here. This series, Jesus has been offering his love to your past. Offering his love to your trauma, to your body's pain, to your hopelessness, to your discouragement, to your loneliness. But I'm here to say now, you can know, friends, that not only is he with you in those places, but he's also with you in that place that utterly hates him. He's with you in that place that rejects him and rejects yourself. When you wanna do unimaginable harm to God and to yourself, God is still with you. That's what is finished. Jesus is saying, there's no place your heart can run. There is no hatred of God too great. There is no thirst too strong that he will not say, I'm here to drink, drink and be fulfilled. It's finished. You cannot hate me enough that I'll leave you alone. That's what is finished. The cosmos, the heavens, the earth are full of God's ground swelling presence, his life and his love. Every mode of being in this existence, even sin and death, God is there. His love is strong enough because he's the only one who could be so strong that he would enter into pure weakness. He's the only one that could be so strong that he would enter into utter darkness. You can't get away from him. That's the good news I have for you today. Not that you're good. You're not. I'm not either. The good news is you cannot get away from the all-encompassing, reckless, 
powerful love of God. It will seek you out in your sin. It will seek you out in your death. The only choice you got is will you receive it? So will you pray with me? Um, eyes are closed in this room and I want to just give an opportunity for anyone here who maybe something about this message just hit you in a new way and you want to start a relationship or restart a relationship with Jesus in a second I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and I know that seems silly why do we raise our hands well it's simple because so much of what God is doing in Jesus is making explicit what his heart feels implicitly toward us. And there's something powerful when our bodies register publicly what's going on inside of us. And so if something has been said today and you're like, I need this love, Jesus, I want to receive it today, whether for the first or the hundredth time you want to start again, would you just raise your hand between you, me, and God right now? I want to pray with you in those hands that are raised. You can put them down. Father, you know every heart. You know every person here. Would they know that your perfect, powerful love is with them in their absolute weakness? Would they know that there is nowhere they can run that would outrun you, that would outpace you. There's nothing they can do that you would ever look at them and say, that's too much. No, no, actually, you're already there in the place of the darkness, the pain, and the death. You're already there, and because your love is there, it's been reversed. Your love is the strongest thing in this cosmos. It will be the last thing left, and so they receive your love right now. Enter them and fill them, Jesus, with your spirit and start them on a brand new trajectory. And for the rest of us in this room, God, would today be a reminder of just how powerful your love is? I don't know what people walked in with, what's going on in their lives and their hearts. I don't know what they may doubt about you right now. But would they know in their heart of hearts in that place that doesn't seek to front or posture, but in that utterly honest place that knows it is broken and even it hates being a dependent creature. It hates having to depend on you. Even in that place, would they know today that you were there not to control, but to lay yourself down in love for them? And would they respond not to control themselves, not to posture, but to lift their hands in praise of you? Thank you that it is finished, God. Thank you that your love is stronger than our rejection of you and is stronger even than our death. So we worship you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? And we're going to sing a song of response. And if you need prayer, out those doors to the right, people would love to pray with you. Hey, Hope Brooklyn. Darren here, your fellow Hope Brooklynite. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you're part of the community, you're aware that we've been exploring the topic of generosity and stewardship. 
Each week, we offer a thought to reflect on as we prepare to enter 2020, relying completely on your generosity. So have a listen to what we discussed this last Sunday, and we'll see you around the table soon. Welcome to our third fireside chat. Um, we have with us today, yes, it is, it is very cozy by the fire. Thanks for joining. Uh, we're very lucky to have with us today Raquel, uh, Raquel Enad. And um, Raquel's actually been part of the Hope community for two plus years. She's part of the original, or close to the original group. Um, Raquel, how did you find Hope? How did you hear about it? Yeah, so I actually found out about it on Facebook. Um, a friend, or a person who's a friend now, she had just posted um, something about a table, and it sounded very Christian, so I was like, maybe this is a church I should check out. <laughs> so I Googled Hope Brooklyn, and to be honest, I don't know who was managing the website at the time, but at least my impression of it, it was kind of a weird website. It, all it, literally all it said was, we love brunch, we love Jesus, come to Sunday. And I've been going to church my whole life, so seeing that, I was like, this sounds kind of weird, but I'll check it out. So I ended up going, um, and I, I really liked it. Um, it was actually a guest speaker at the time, and the topic was on community. Um, and then afterwards, there was actually no brunch, and it was like, I know, which was, was like, what is this? But it was like, go invite, like, invite it, go out somewhere in the community, grab a friend. I was like, oh, no, I don't know anyone. So I was like going to kind of leave quickly after I said hi to the person who posted on Facebook. Um, but then actually Russ introduced himself to me, and I think um, it was so touching for someone to notice a new person, like especially the lead pastor. It was almost right. like celebrity status. Like I feel like you have to be going to a church for a while for like the pastor sometimes to notice you. Um, but yeah, that's how I found out about her Brooklyn. Okay, and um, I learned something unique about you previously when we were chatting, and that is that you've moved 21 times in the last 10 years. That sounds so intense. Like, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, Closer to the mic. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I've moved a lot in the last couple of years, and it's been for a lot of different reasons. It could be for a school or for a job or someone saying your lease is going to end four months earlier. Mm. You need to leave like in a month. Um, it's been bad landlords. It's been a lot of different things. Um, and I've lived in a couple different cities, so sometimes it'd be a little bit scary to think about, like, what is that going to look like and what my life has, is going to look like, but God has been consistent in providing for but, me. Like, just out of curiosity, what, what cities are we talking here? Because um, I know you grew up in California, right? Yeah, I grew up in Merced, California. Um, so in the last 10 years, I've had to move back home a few times and live with my parents. Um, I've lived in South Africa in the Philippines, San Francisco, Oakland, Boston, DC, and in Brooklyn, I've moved three times in and, the last two years. And how did you feel? This sounds absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm scared listening to this, right? How did you move basically once, twice, maybe sometimes three times a year? Mm -hmm. And like, what was that like? How did you feel? Craigslist, that's how I felt. <laughs> um, Craigslist yeah. is on your, is on your yeah. bookmark, yeah. Yeah, I'm an ambassador. Um, yeah, honestly, it was a lot of prayer, a lot of stress sometimes, a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Um, but a lot of just seeing how over the years God has always provided and been so consistent. And sometimes I would, I have like a strategy. I have this intense spreadsheet of how I have to like apply for housing because it can be really intense. Um, and it's been amazing to see how God sometimes, not, like almost every time, has given me an apartment better than I thought and is like below budget and is with... Mm -hmm. You know, you never know with crazy, like, the rando, like, roommates. 
and I'm really thankful for the most part. I'd say, with the exception of one time, I've had really good roommates too, and made some really good friends from that. And um, I was I was saying to you earlier, there have been times when I have moved and things feel fine, but I feel so discouraged, and I don't know why God has called me to a certain place. And one thing I do is I listen to Chris Tomlin's "I Will Follow." on repeat and I'll be like like crying sometimes and I'm like okay god I'm gonna follow you I don't know why I'm here I still don't get it but like I know this is where I'm supposed to be and in terms of giving how does that translate into finances how does that translate into giving to this church or to whatever church you're a part of right because isn't it hard I mean you're moving moving costs a big chunk of money every time you move and then getting resettled in and canceling things and paying fees like why give more wouldn't you want to give less Yeah, for sure. And I definitely have struggled with that internally. Um, Like, for example, this last two moves ago, um, my rent increased pretty, it it wasn't by a lot, but it was enough that I felt kind of like overwhelmed. And especially with all the other expense I was paying at that time. Um, And to be completely transparent, I thought about cutting my tithe in half that month because I was like, you know, a lot of these could go towards my moving expenses. Right. And no one will ever know, right? When when was the last time you were shaken down by a church? Oh, where did November go? Right. Like, you know, I see a gap, right? Like, it doesn't happen, right? Oh, well, that's in my next one. Um, But yeah, so I still I still gave the amount I give in tithing, and I was I kind of just like, okay, God is going to provide. He's always in the past. And around that time, I asked for a raise at work, and it was more of like a professional development activity because I had heard that no one at my job or like no one on our team gets a raise. Right. And so I went into this meeting having like an outline, like, okay, they're going to say no to this. I'll ask for this. They're going to say no for this. I'm going to ask for this thing at the very end. <laughs> and then I went in, and to my surprise, they were going to give me a raise. And when they told me the amount, it wasn't a lot, but I found out later when I divided it by 12, it was actually the exact difference in the increased rent I was paying. And it was just another example of like how God is like not only like met and provided for me, but like, and how he gives us, like has given me more than sometimes I've asked for. And even the things that I don't ask for, like the things I hope for, but I'm like, don't think it's possible. Um, And just seeing how God has been so good in that way. Right. there's things that we want to pray for, but it's like, no, I can't pray for that. That's so arrogant, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think we're in those, one, of, one of those times now because it's December. And, and I think all of us are being poured out, right? Like the money's going out the door buying Christmas gifts, right? The expenses for hosting events, you know, joining other people's events. There's just the money's just leaving us. And it's scary, right? And so, you know, even me, I'm looking. I'm afraid to log on to the to the my, my online accounts and do the math. And it's like I'm 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 just I just I don't want to deal with it, right? It's hard. Like, what would your advice be for someone like me? Yeah, I'd say it's um, like almost see it as an act of faith, and that giving like God doesn't need our money. Like He has everything at His own hand. Like if He really wanted it, and I think that in giving monetarily, it could be the first step of learning how to let go of other aspects of your life, like your desires, your timelines, your expectations, your comfort, your certainties, and seeing that like how God will provide and meet you and like oftentimes, if not all the time, act in ways that are bigger than our bigger picture. And so if we surrender or let go of control, of like our money and what other ways will he call us to bigger things and how will he do bigger things in our own lives and in the lives of those around us in our community. Raquel, you've shown us today how if we let go, uh, God's 
cup will overflow for us. And thank you so much for your stories. Would you join me in thanking Raquel? To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week. <laughs>